0: Hey, it's me, Zoe, your host. I wanna take a second to tell you about a new podcast I've gotten very into. And if you've ever felt alone in a room full of people, I think you'll be very into it too. The podcast is called The Only One in the Room and host Laura Cathcart-Robbins along with her co-host Scott Slaughter talk to actors and influencers, musicians, filmmakers, CEOs, writers, supermodels, and real people about their incredible only one stories. This podcast is for anybody who's ever felt alone in a crowded room, which is to say everyone. Now, on to the interview. Becoming a mom has changed Alyssa Milano in every way possible.
1: It definitely made me more loving. It made me more outraged. It made me more concerned for our planet. It really has been a revelation to find the true essence of who I am.
0: The actress, who's known for her roles in Who's the Boss and Charmed, is also an author, political activist, and a mom to 10-year-old Milo and seven-year-old Elizabella. And despite having a very specific plan for their births, vaginal or bust, as she called it, things took a different turn and both babies arrived via cesarean. But that C-section scar, Alyssa has come to love it.
1: I mean, how many people can say, this is where they cut me open removed all of the organs in the way, got my baby out, put all of the organs back in, and then stitched me and stapled me up. There's something incredibly tribal about it.
0: Alyssa didn't shy away from some very painful topics. She talks about having her babies after abortions and pregnancy loss and how being a sexual abuse survivor impacted the experience of childbirth.
1: I remembered at one point really not enjoying the fact that lots of people had access to my vagina, and thinking to myself, why does this invasive feeling feel so familiar?
0: Alyssa's new book, Sorry Not Sorry, is a collection of extremely personal essays. In the book, she writes about how early her dreams of motherhood took hold. That's where we began our amazing, sincere, and sometimes painful, difficult conversation. This is Me Becoming Mom, where we talk to famous women you know and love all about their extraordinary journeys to motherhood. I'm Zoe Ruderman from People. I'm really curious to kind of go back in time and hear, when did you first know you wanted to be a mom? I, I read in your book that when you were little, you would dream about breastfeeding and middle of the night feedings.
1: Yeah, for sure. And in my 20s, a lot of that dream was realized by just buying new pets or adopting new pets. But I was pretty confident that I wasn't going to even try to attempt having a child by myself. Um, so I just, I waited, you know, for the right person uh, to have children with. And for me, that was my my wonderful husband, David, who I've been with for 15 years now. And um, yeah, I just, I knew when I met him, That I wanted Dave to be my husband and and my baby daddy.
0: So how soon did you two start trying? We started trying pretty immediately
1: because I got married when I was 36. As a woman, they tell you you're born with all the eggs you're ever going to have, like pretty much at the first gynecological exam. They're like, well, you better
0: start thinking about this. Do you know that my mother in law, the first time I met her, told me that exact line? I was like, thank you. That is not helpful at all. Great. Love it. Um, but yeah, so so we we started pretty,
1: pretty soon after we got married. Um and I got pregnant right away after we pulled the goalie. Uh at an IUD. And um, I got pregnant right away and then we miscarried. What was that experience like? I mean, I don't Think I was prepared for it, but um, the way it was explained to me was that if there is something that your body cannot produce or is lacking in order to have this particular baby, that the the pregnancy, um, you know, will will take care of itself. And so, you know, my whole thought was, okay, well, there is something something wrong. Um, and it, it wasn't the right time. And the interesting thing is, is that with my daughter, I also miscarried before my daughter. So at that point I was kind of just aware that this is
0: maybe how my body does it. Sure. So after you miscarried before having Milo, did you feel ready to start trying right away?
1: No, I mean, I was ready to, to try again, as soon as they gave me the okay. Okay. It just felt like it was a bummer. I mean, you know, I know that a lot of women take miscarriages very hard, but for me, it was um, it was part of the process, I guess. It was part of the process, and it, you know, both miscarriages were. I think I was maybe seven or eight weeks pregnant, so um, you know, if if it wasn't viable.
0: Um, my body did what it was supposed to do. And so I, I still look at it like that. It seems like a very healthy way of looking at it. I had read somewhere, and if you're comfortable talking about this, I would love to ask about it, that you had thought in the moment like this is punishment for abortions that I've had.
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely had this moment of, well, we're th- being punished basically for for abortions in my in my 20s. Um and it took it took me I didn't realize that at the time it took a while in in therapy to realize that that was something that I was putting
0: on myself and you've been really open about talking about that part of your history and I think it's really helpful for women especially now that this is very much a topic of conversation and mm-hmm. our rights are very much in jeopardy. But I think a lot of women, some of my friends included, feel like, oh, if I tell people I had an abortion, they think that means, oh, I never wanted to be a mom. So I think it's really helpful to hear moms, people who always wanted to be moms, talk about it just wasn't the time for me or there were other reasons why I didn't want to have this child.
1: Oh, for sure. And I think it's important that we continue to talk about it. Um, You know, I... I think for me personally, and obviously these are such personal decisions, but my, um, inability to not be a selfish 20 year old was reason enough. Um, but then there was a lot that I wanted to, to do before I had children. And the point was, is that, you know, I was given a choice to, to control my life and to control my own destiny. And, one in four women, I think, have had an abortion. So, I mean, for the women that are listening to this who don't want to discuss it, I mean, you should just know that you are not alone in, in that
0: decision um, that, that you made. And that it doesn't have to make the decision about a future path to motherhood either.
1: And... The fact that there's a whole generation of of young women who are coming into their sexuality who are, uh, you know, shit happens. Mistakes happen. Things happen. And the, the fact that they cannot control their own destiny and their own futures is, I mean, it, it feeds right into uh,
0: the patriarchy and what they're trying to do. So I want to get back to Milo's timeline. So tell me about when you found out you were pregnant with him.
1: When I was pregnant with Milo, when I found out I was pregnant with Milo, my husband and I were in Hawaii. And it was, I want to say New Year's Eve. And we were just ecstatic. And then it became, you know,
0: the, like, do we call home? Do we wait till we get home? I think we called home. So did you have to like go out and buy a pregnancy test in Hawaii?
1: Yes, well, I sent my husband in.
0: And so because you had had a miscarriage prior to this, were you able to feel celebratory right away? Was it nerve wracking going in for that first scan? What were the emotions that you were experiencing early on in the pregnancy?
1: I think I um, was probably a little scared that I would miscarry again, Um, especially being, you know, the age that I was. But, you know, then you go in and your doctor tells you everything looks good and it's impossible not to fall in love. I just loved being pregnant. There's just this, like, this realization of how incredibly perfect of a machine, um, birthing women's bodies are and how how spectacular it is to to feel those changes and then to start to feel you know a baby kick and and then to like realize that they they did the same things inside their your body that they do like you know like my kids used to do this little like cricket thing with their little feet And it used to tickle me up in my (laughs) ribs. And that's how they fall asleep. Both of them, they do this little cricket thing with their feet. Like with Milo, it was so beautiful because I wasn't working when I was pregnant. So I was able to take, you know, yoga classes and have a nap in the afternoon. It was a little different with Bella because we were shooting um, Project Runway All-Stars in New York. So not only was I super – I. We wrapped like 10 days before I gave birth to her. So not only was I super pregnant, but I was also in like stilettos and, you know, just the best fashion you could possibly imagine. But I was
0: enormous. I don't think I wore heels once in my third trimester. That sounds like torture to me.
1: When I got home, because we shot in New York, when I got home and it was right before I was giving birth to Bella, I mean, I couldn't even put on shoes. Yeah. Yeah. My husband was tying my shoes at the end. My feet were so bloated. Um, But this idea, which which I adopted during my pregnancies, of my body is doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. My body knows what it's doing, just let
0: go, was incredibly profound. So, how did that idea of my body knows what to do carry over into your birth preferences? I think at one point you phrased it, maybe it was in your book, as vaginal birth or bust. Well,
1: I think when you go through all of those classes, I realized like there was or is an expectation of the way in which you're supposed to give birth to a baby. And so I felt. That I needed to do it the way, you know, they were naturally telling me it was done. Meaning
0: no intervention. Yeah, just going to the hospital and have a baby. So, were you thinking like no Pitocin, no epidural? Yes.
1: I mean, that was my birth plan, which I never kept, which I wish I kept, but I had it all written down. And my husband knew the birth plan and he felt like it was his responsibility to. (laughs) I always say he was like a football coach. You know, he was like, come on, let's go, let's do this, you know? And so he f- feels bad still to this day that he pushed so hard for me to not have an epidural and do all of those, those things that would have made life so much more comfortable. But then, of course, after 18 hours of labor and three and a half hours of pushing, my, uh, OBGYN Walt stands. she's like, I could have told you this was going to
0: happen. Wow. What did you think when the doctor said that? Well,
1: I was in another world, but apparently everyone around me, my husband, my mother, they were like, well, why didn't you? Why, why put her through this? You know. And she said because she wanted to give birth naturally. But his head was 13 centimeters. There was no way he was coming out
0: vaginally. So tell me about those eighteen hours plus three and a half hours. Do you feel scared or nervous?
1: No, I wasn't. Ner- I mean, they. What happened was, is I had a slow leak, so they had to induce with pitocin. Um, and as soon as they hooked up the fetal monitor and I could hear Milo's heartbeat, that's the only thing I focused on. I was like, you know what? This is this is what I am. Uh, I am here to do and let's, let's do it. I'm very, I was more so then, but I'm very type A as far as I like, I like things to go as planned (laughs) because that's why you plan. And, uh, you know, as soon as my water broke and it it was like this slow trickle, I knew pretty quickly that it wasn't going to go as planned. So, you know, I held off as long as I could on an epidural, but I got at seven centimeters when I thought I was going to die.
0: I <laughs> I got the epidural. I love this part of your book where you talked about all of the planning and like you had a digital frame with photos of your dogs, and you had the music all planned out. Um, And I think the line is, I didn't need an epidural, I had gin and juice. So talk about, like, all of that planning and, like, what was in your hospital bag? Because this does not sound like your basics in the hospital bag.
1: Okay. Well, you know, everyone tells you what they think you should bring. So instead of, like, deciding which part of what they were saying would fit into who I was... I just brought everything because I was like, I was like, okay, you know what? Someone told me I should bring a digital frame with pictures of the kids. I mean, of the dogs, the kids at the time, my fur kids, of the dogs and and the family, and that'll be a great focal point. And I mean, it was like a trunk for sure. And then I couldn't understand the whole concept of staying in. A hospital gown. So I wound up bringing clothes, you know, but I brought more pairs of socks because everyone kept telling me how cold your feet get and lip balm. I had every kind of lip balm with me just in case, like, you know, I had. This kind, in case the smell of this kind was making me nauseous, or maybe the baby didn't want to smell this on my lips, and maybe I'll just use, you know, aquaphor. I mean, it's just, it it was like a trunk. It was a trunk.
0: That's amazing. Okay, so your OBGYN says-
1: I could have told you this was going to happen.
0: Yeah, I could have told you this was going to happen. So did you feel relief or disappointment that this was going to be the way that you gave birth?
1: That I was that aware that I'm able to really tell you an honest an honest emotion of how I felt then I was just after pushing for three and a half hours and you know the things that they don't tell you about that, which I talk about in my book, is that they're really invasive. You're just ready to to be past this part of this. <laughs> Like, do it. Like, I'm I'm ready to move past this, you know, 18 hours
0: of this. Invasive is such a good word for it. I certainly was not prepared for how invasive it was. And um, there was one line that stood out to me where you said, everybody has access to your vagina when you're having a baby. But you've talked about how childbirth can be particularly traumatizing for victims of sexual assault and abuse. So can you tell me a little bit about how that kind of brought up that experience and how you dealt with that?
1: Well, I remembered um, at one point really not enjoying the fact that lots of people had access to my vagina Um, and thinking to myself, why does – like, I don't like this. And why does it feel so familiar? I've never had a baby before. Why did why does this invasive feeling feel so familiar? And I mean, that was just a fleeting moment, a tick in time, but I didn't forget about it. And so I ha- I had postpartum anxiety and depression after Milo, and so after going through therapy after giving birth to to Milo, and remembering that one moment of. Feeling like I was being held down and had things being done to me that I didn't want uh, to me was very reminiscent of being sexually assaulted. And so it triggered, like, all of these memories that I thought I had dealt with, you know, and I think anyone who has dealt with trauma um, has the, like, moments where you're like, yeah, I'm fine. I've dealt with that versus the moments where you go, oh, no, I didn't. I just tried to tuck it away so no one could see them or I couldn't see them or feel them anymore. I mean, I had never heard of a a woman describing childbirth like that invasive feeling of being assaulted, but that's what it felt like for me. Um, And, you know, I got to think that because it felt that way for me, it must have felt that way for, for other women. And so – and I wonder how much of my postpartum anxiety was due to, you know, of course, hormones and all of the things, but also that feeling that felt like I wasn't in control, you know. And I think the lesson we all learn as, as moms and we learn it pretty quickly is that there's nothing you can control in parenthood. It's the most runaway train feeling, and it's bizarre because it's that coupled with such intense, beautiful love. It's just miraculous that any mother would not have some sort of postpartum or anxiety about parenthood. I, I am so convinced that every mother goes through some type of this, whether it be depression or anxiety, this romantic idea of, of, of childbirth and, and having a child where it's like the moms look perfect and they're on the white sheets and they're, the baby's latching on so perfectly. And it's just not like that. It's just not. It's wonderful, but it's also terrifying. I think we would be better to say that out
0: loud. Hey, it's Zoe. I recently discovered a podcast called Work Like a Mother, and it's dedicated to real conversations with incredible women juggling work, life, and motherhood. Each week, a guest shares her experience as a working mom, and each week I take away some amazing parenting wisdom and feel a little bit less alone knowing that there's a community of working moms who are trying to figure it out just like I am. They've already hosted economist and bestselling author Emily Oster. She's a personal favorite of mine. They've had Hamilton star Mandy Gonzalez, Olympic gold medalist Amanda Beard, and many more. Work Like a Mother is produced by Neighbor Schools. Neighbor Schools is a startup in Boston that helps parents find daycare and educators start new daycares. When Milo comes into this world, do they hand him to you right away?
1: Yes. They they put him on my chest because I had a C-section after all of that. He's the most beautiful, perfect thing ever. Sweet, delicious, smells like, I don't even know, like a cross between apricot and cotton candy. And he started, little cutie, he started like trying to find my nipple but ended up on my nose? No. So I have all these pictures of like him just being born and him suckling on my nose trying to get
0: <laughs> Isn't that wild that seconds old and they know to do that? Talk about your body knowing what to do. Yeah,
1: it's insane. And just the fact that the, you know, your nipples go dark because they can't see, like they see contrast better. It's just we are perfect machines.
0: It's a miracle, all of the things that happen.
1: It's a miracle. It's a miracle.
0: After you have Milo, you have postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression. Um, You mentioned that you had a miscarriage in between.
1: Yeah, right before my pregnancy with my daughter. So it would have been two, two years. Milo is two.
0: And did you feel, I don't know what the word is, more prepared for that miscarriage? Did it feel different once you had a child?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, The doctor that delivered Bella, he said, you know, sometimes this is how women's bodies prepare for a pregnancy. And so, you know, knowing that I got pregnant again, but at this point I was 40, 40, 40, so we probably should have froze eggs when I had 38-year-old eggs and We just never did. We just never got around to it because then all of a sudden we were parents. So we, you know, conceived naturally and I was obviously a high-risk pregnancy. By the time I had Bella, I was 41.
0: Alyssa's pregnancy with Bella was uneventful and her doctor recommended a planned C-section instead of a VBAC. VBAC stands for vaginal birth after C-section. But when Bella decided to arrive five weeks early, Alyssa thought for a moment about changing course. But in the end, she stuck to the plan.
1: And my husband didn't believe I was in labor because she was five weeks early. So I labored for six hours before <laughs> before going to the hospital. And then my doctor, he was like, well, let's see if they go, if the if your contractions go away, because it could be Braxton Hicks. And I was like, but I've been having these contractions since 4 o'clock. It's now 10 p.m. Like, So you knew? I knew at 4 o'clock because I had Braxton Hicks contractions my entire pregnancy from maybe five months on, and I knew that this felt different. And so <laughs> so my parents were in Italy because she was five weeks early. So we thought, 10 days in Italy is fine. You'll have plenty of time to get back. Nope. So my best friend, Allah, he, I made him come into the room with us and he had convinced <laughs> the anesthesiologist that i was their surrogate oh my god this is why he's my best friend cuz he's hysterically funny and so and my doctor played along with it so i mean we just had a you know a grand old <laughs> But here is the funny. The best part is that uh, Dr. Fenmore, my my doctor, who, whom I love so much, said to me, um, he said, uh, you know, I think I think we're gonna we're gonna take her. The question is, are we gonna go? Na- it was like eleven thirty at night, or should we wait until after midnight? And my best friend looked on his phone and looked up birthdays and realized that Beyonce's birthday was on the fourth, and so. Allah, my best friend, said, nope, we're going to wait. We'll wait till after midnight because Beyonce's birthday is on the
0: 4th. I love that so much. It's sweet. Yeah. It's amazing. You've talked about how even though this was not part of your preferences or your plan, that you really grew to love your C-section scar. Yeah. Because,
1: I mean, how many people can say this is where they cut me open, removed all of the organs in the way, got my baby out, gave me my baby, put all of the organs back in, and then stitched me and stapled me up. I mean, it's like there's something incredibly
0: tribal about it almost. It feels like a
1: – almost like a tattoo in a way.
0: And tell me about when you saw Bella for the first moment and you held her.
1: Well, she looked just like what I thought Milo was going to look like. Which is? Because – Well, Milo came out with no hair and blue eyes. And I was like, whose baby is this? (laughs) Because my husband and I are both Italian. We're both dark. Um, And Bella came out with this thick, beautiful, wavy black hair and these big eyes that uh, looked brown, but they actually wound up turning really, really green.
0: And tell me about when you introduced the two of them. Did Milo feel like, this is my baby?
1: Well, I put her in her bassinet in the hospital, so that wasn't the first image was his mommy holding another baby, so that he could discover her on his own. And he just kept saying, because he had just turned three, so he kept saying, she came out? She came out, Mama? Baby Bella? Baby Bella came out of her belly? Oh, and it's just so sweet. And then he would put his little hand on her cheek and he'd put her pacifier in, his, in her mouth. Those two, so, so sweet. I still had postpartum anxiety, but it was very different. It was, um, first of all, I had, I knew what it was and I had a team of people helping me through it this time. And second of all, I knew that Uh, medication worked for me. And so if I needed to go on an antidepressant, there was no shame in that whatsoever. And so it was a lot more enjoyable.
0: I'm curious what advice you would give to a woman who is going into labor and delivery into her birth plan and wants to do it without intervention like you did. What would you say to someone now that you have been through it?
1: You know, I, I think every woman is on their own birthing journey. I just know that for me, the more I dug my heels into wanting things done a certain way, it made adapting to things being done differently harder. And so, and that is maybe the first lesson that a child will teach you. Whatever you think and whatever you plan for, that you have to be adaptable. And be able to to go with the flow and ride the wave. Because parenthood is definitely,
0: uh, you know, a wave. Alyssa Milano's new book includes a lot on becoming a mom and being a mom, and I really enjoyed it. It's called Sorry Not Sorry, and it's out now. Alyssa's road to motherhood took a lot of twists and turns. Abortions, pregnancy losses being re-traumatized during childbirth because of past abuse, all of these experiences are more common than people imagine. And if you're thinking about having a baby after pregnancy termination, miscarriage, or sexual abuse, you may have some questions. So I went to one of our favorite OBGYNs to get the hard facts on these difficult topics.
2: I am Dr. Danielle Jones. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and mom to four. Some of you may know me as Mom and Dr. Jones on the internet.
0: I started by asking Dr. Jones about the guilt that so many women who lose a pregnancy carry because they feel responsible.
2: With all pregnancy loss, I always tell my patients, you did not cause this. If it was that easy to end a pregnancy, nobody would need help having an abortion. Then you can't lift something too heavy or eat and drink the wrong things. These things don't just suddenly cause a miscarriage. So I think it's really, really important for people to know whether it's from abortion or miscarriage that No matter how you're feeling in the time that this is happening, it is normal. The only feeling that is not acceptable is guilt because you didn't do anything that could cause this.
0: I love that. That's really reassuring and helpful to hear. What are the most common reasons for a pregnancy loss?
2: You know, a lot of times we just don't know, unfortunately. Aside from that, genetic abnormalities are the most commonly identified reason for a pregnancy loss. Um, But again, a lot of times we just don't know the cause.
0: How do you define early loss versus not early loss?
2: Just to define some terms, any loss that's under 20 weeks is going to be considered miscarriage. Over 20 weeks is either going to be fetal death or preterm delivery. And as far as miscarriage goes, you know, early and late is a little bit of a relative term. We do know that loss after 13 weeks is uh, a lot less common than in the first 13 weeks. How common are miscarriages exactly in the first trimester? This can be a little bit hard to tease out. You'll see numbers anywhere from about 20 to 30%.
0: And if you see a patient who has had one or two early pregnancy losses in the first trimester, what would you say to her about her future chances of carrying a healthy pregnancy and having a healthy baby?
2: The most important thing to understand with this is that with any loss, even when you've had several miscarriages, the chances that the next pregnancy will go on to result in a healthy full-term pregnancy are much higher than the chances that you will have another pregnancy loss. So it is a little bit of an increased risk, but I don't ever want somebody to hear that and think, oh, I shouldn't try to get pregnant again because there still is a very good chance that you will end up having a take-home baby.
0: And let's talk a little bit about the emotional impact of a miscarriage. What do you tell a patient who has lost a pregnancy and is now in, um, another pregnancy and is perhaps feeling incredibly anxious with every appointment, with every scan, what would you tell someone?
2: That's a very normal response. I always tell my patients, you know, once you've left this pregnancy as a happy bubble spot, once that's been burst, you don't ever get to go back in it. And whether that's from having miscarriages or having a term stillborn, whatever it is, it's going to lead to increased worry and anxiety in the subsequent pregnancy. And that's a very normal response to going through something that can be traumatic for some people. I always tell my patients, however you feel with a loss is normal. Some people don't feel like this is a huge tragedy, and other people feel like their entire world has stopped, and both of those are very normal and very okay.
0: And how long do women typically have to wait to try again after having a first trimester loss?
2: So with a first trimester loss, I usually tell patients that you're going to be ready physically as soon as you're ready emotionally. There's no specific waiting time. We used to tell people arbitrarily, you should wait six months or you should wait three months, and there's no data that supports that being necessary. There's no increased risk of loss, uh, even if you get pregnant the first cycle afterwards.
0: And is it true? I think a lot of us have heard that you're more fertile immediately after a miscarriage.
2: We do sometimes tend to see people um, ovulate sooner after a miscarriage. I don't know how we prove it or disprove it, so I can't answer specifically, but I have seen people who feel like that was the case.
0: Got it. Okay. So I want to shift over and talk about women who have had abortions.
2: Having abortion is not something that we see affecting fertility in the long run. Certainly if you've had several procedural abortions like DNC or DNE, There may be some slight increased risk with those, but especially for early first trimester abortions using abortion pill, there's no relation to infertility in the future. From my
0: understanding, survivors of sexual abuse can feel re-traumatized through the birth process. So what's your advice or what are your suggestions for someone who's pregnant or who's going to deliver and knows that this is going to be really difficult in a unique way for them?
2: Sure. So I think the number one most important thing is to find a healthcare team that you feel comfortable talking to, that you can have this discussion with ahead of time. He's aware of what you've been through and making sure that those people are actually taking to heart what you're saying so that they're helping you move forward. What your OB or midwife or whoever you're working with should tell you is that if you have this kind of trauma, it's really, really important to get in with a good cognitive behavioral therapist or psychiatrist, psychologist ahead of time and go ahead and start with some counseling. Because anytime you've had trauma that's related to sexual abuse, this is going to be resurfacing anytime you're having you know exams or labor or anything and especially when you're going into these things for the first time after a situation like that having some therapy leading up to it can be really really helpful
0: i think a lot of people don't realize when it's their first time you know a doctor might be coming in to check how dilated you are and there's not a conversation preceding that they're not asking for consent but i would love to reassure listeners that there is um A world where you don't have to consent to all of those checks and where you can have a conversation about consent each time. Is that true?
2: Absolutely. I think that the medical system is operating on a historical patriarchy that had a tendency to be extremely overbearing and and not really take into account the feelings of the person who was sitting in front of them. And trauma-informed care includes consent for exams. And I think that that's important anytime, but especially when you're dealing with someone who has been through something traumatic like sexual abuse.
0: That was Mama Dr. Jones. You can get much, much more straight talk on women's health from her on her YouTube channel, TikTok, or Instagram. She's at Mama Dr. Jones. That's it for this episode of Me Becoming Mom. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. It really helps people find the show. And we'd also love it if you told a friend about us. Next week, I sit down with talk show host Tamron Hall, who became a mom at age 48 with IVF, but kept the news private until she was 32 weeks along. I was doing my shots in airports and... I'd given a speech in Peoria, Illinois, and I remember going in the ladies' room and setting up a whole medical table. And I'm thinking, if someone's going to walk in this bathroom, they're going to think, what is Tamron all up to? This podcast is produced by People in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Andy Kubis, Jason Mack, Ryan Rivers, Elisa Sessler, and Suzanne Semeloff. Our executive producers are Lauren Mickler, David Flumenbaum, and me, Zoe Ruderman. Thank you so much for listening.